Before we begin studying tonight, would you pray with me? Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kitsheno b'mitzvotah v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I want to talk to you tonight about being people who spread the good news. And to get started, I want you to to look down at your own feet. So could you just take a minute and look at your feet? It doesn't even take a minute, does it? Uh, What do you see? Some of you maybe have new shoes. Anybody with new shoes? Not a soul with new shoes. Okay, so how many of you are seeing old shoes? Okay. Well, I want you to take one last look at your feet, and then I want you to look at them the way that Isaiah saw feet such as ours. He saw beautiful feet. So if you're sitting next to someone that you like, look at their feet and see if they're beautiful. If they are, tell them you got beautiful feet. Beautiful feet according to Isaiah. Let me read to you what Isaiah said. This is Isaiah 52 verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim shalom, peace, who bring good news, who proclaim salvation, Yeshua, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Paul had the same opinion in Ephesians 6.15. He said, the shoes you're wearing... Are, are the shoes that make you prepared to share the gospel of peace, the, the good news of shalom. So look at your feet one more time. I don't want you to see old shoes, since I know now that's what you're wearing. I want you to see beautiful feet, and, and I want you to see special shoes that God has given you. You see, when you take a position that everywhere you stand, you're going to bring good news. Everywhere you go, you're going to be a message from the Lord. You're going to be a different kind of person. Let me read two more passages from Isaiah 52, verses 6 through 8. It's the context of what we were just reading. My people will know my name. How many of you are in favor of all the Jewish people knowing the name of Yeshua? Therefore, in that day... I'm the one who's speaking, Hineni, here I am. How lovely on the mountains, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. And when you look at the Hebrew, this word for salvation is a related word to Yeshua, the name of our Messiah. And who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together because they will see with their own eyes as the Lord restores Zion. See, this is one of the great promises of God. When you start sharing good news with our Jewish people, you'll be refreshed. You'll be joyful. You'll see the restoration of the Jewish people with your own eyes. In Isaiah 40, verse 9, there's this interesting declaration. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. 
You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. How many of you have ever had the experience of being afraid to share the good news with someone? Can you identify with that? Sometimes you know people need the good news, but you're reluctant to share because you don't know what their reaction is going to be. Well, I want you to think about what God promises to you. He promises that when you're thinking of the good of those people and not about fear or not about your own concern, God will use you to bless them, to bless them in a mighty way. Now, you, you look down at your feet. That was good. Now, I want you to do something else. I want you to look up to heaven. It's hard to see from here. So the best you can do maybe is to... Look up to the ceiling of the sanctuary. That's pretty good. But I want you to, to think about something. Yeshua was talking to his disciples. And he realized that they weren't looking in the right way. And they weren't looking at the right place when they were thinking about what God wanted to do. And so in John chapter 4 verse 35, Yeshua gives this commanding word. He says, don't say this. There are four more months and then the harvest will come. Don't say that. And he says, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Look up. And look at the fields that are out there. Because they're ripe, ready, and white for the harvest. They're already prepared for the harvest. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is getting paid. He's gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. You see, Yeshua is saying, wherever you're looking, it's important to keep your focus on the condition of the harvest because there is a harvest that's ready. Now, sometimes it's a great harvest and sometimes it's a small harvest. But what is important is to have this attitude that Yeshua talked about. Don't say it's for later. Don't say it's just going to take a long time. There are times when God wants to work in surprising way and in amazing ways. It reminds me of a time in Budapest. We have a ministry there to Holocaust survivors. And the first three years of that ministry saw not one single Jewish person turn to Yeshua. And yet, month after month, Kati Shua, now Kati Hanbauer, um, labored faithfully among those Holocaust survivors to the point where they got comfortable opening up. She knew that she had to spend time developing trust with them, reminding them of how faithful the God of Israel was. One day, one day, it was actually an evening, they were having a meeting together, and she felt the need to pray a really simple prayer. And in, uh, in Hungarian, she used this special word for God that only the Jewish people use, Urakevalo. Can you say that with me? 
Urdekevelo. And of course, Hungarian people will say I didn't pronounce it exactly right, because Hungarian is just the hardest language in the world to get right. But it means eternal one. And so she just prayed, Urdekevelo, come. And when she prayed that, you know what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on that group. And, and people started repenting and turning to the Lord. There were healings that took place, and it was the beginning of a whole new period. One of the oldest people in that group came to the Lord. He got touched, and he was so strong as a believer. He had been an architect, a professional in Budapest for many years. He was responsible for the architecture of the British consulate and the British residence in, in Budapest. And he would go to his friends and he would say to them, I want to tell you something. Yeshua is the Messiah. And some of them would say, well, that's what you think. And his answer was, no, it's a fact. And he would say it in such a way that people were taken back. What do you mean it's a fact? He said, it's not a question of whether I believe it or I don't believe it. It's a fact. And he said it in such a way that people started believing him. And the reason is, it is a fact. Am I correct? It's not just a matter of opinion. It is actually a fact that Yeshua is the Messiah. So Yeshua, who is the Messiah, says, lift up your eyes, look at the harvest. And then later on, in Luke 10, verse 2, he was saying to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The problem is there are only a few laborers. Therefore, pray the Lord and ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I had this experience once. I, I prayed, Lord, send laborers into your harvest. Send him. Send her. And there was a moment when the Holy Spirit said, and you? And I said, no, I'm good. Send the one who feels called. Send the one who wants to go. Have you ever prayed like that? Send them. Send that bold one. Send that one who's fearless. Send that one who's been praying, God, use me. Yeshua says, don't pray like that. Pray, Lord, send laborers. And you know how Yeshua means it. Send me. Send me. Can you pray that? Lord, send me. Give me an opportunity to share your good news with someone. I pray that way constantly. This week we went down to uh, prison to speak to one of the death row inmates who will find out on January 15th the date of his execution. He's guilty of committing two murders. The second one in prison and... Uh, he will be executed. He's been given a capital offense, a uh, capital sentence. And, and since, since he committed that murder, something's been developing in him a, a sense of repentance. And when he stood trial, he said something to the court that's unusual. He said, I'm guilty. 
I'm guilty of this, and I do deserve the penalty. So he asked us if we would be spiritual advisors, Antonio Cazares and me are serving in that capacity now. And we went down to see him on Wednesday. And, you know, the question is, how do you bring the gospel to someone who's guilty of two murders? What can you say to such a person? And what we realized is we can say this. If, if you want to be prepared, you have to come to repentance. You have to be remorseful to stop making excuses. You can't justify yourself in any way. And not only that, you have to be prepared to stand before God Almighty, the righteous King of the universe, the Holy One. And what are you going to say to Him? The only thing you can tell is your guilt. I had a picture of him one night when we were praying. I, I felt the Lord gave it to me. It was him weeping and, and just saying over and over again, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm so ashamed for what I did. And I can tell you this, that knowing that coming clean with God is the only basis by which he can approach God and ask for mercy knowing that by confessing his sin before God, this is the starting point. And also, he has to, to he, he can't bring anyone back to life. You understand that? He can't make restitution. He has nothing. The only thing that can be offered is his own life. As a penalty. Not as a sacrifice, as a penalty for his crime. And so he's coming to this place where he realizes that he has to, to apologize to the, to the families of those who survived his murderous acts. He has to apologize to his own family, to those who knew him even when he was growing up and who wondered what happened to him that he turned into a murderer like this. And so when we were together on Wednesday, he opened his heart up even further to us, and he, he told us things we didn't know, but he's, he's had a change of heart about his own remorse and his own repentance. And we're telling him, this is the very best thing you can do. When you come to the Lord and you say, I'm guilty of my sins. I'm guilty of these crimes. The only way I can ask for mercy is because of this. I know that Yeshua died for me. I have no righteousness myself, but I know he died for me. And I am guilty. I am guilty and I deserve to be punished. But I ask for mercy. And he's been making this turn. Now, as a result of this, these changes in him, he's had to communicate with a prison psychologist and psychiatrist 
who are trying to determine is he, is he mentally competent. So wouldn't you know that the main doctor is Jewish? And so on Wednesday, this man said to me, so Rabbi, I need you to talk to my doctor and answer questions for him and find out what he is wanting to know as well. Will you do that? And I said, sure. Yes, I'll do that. And I, I told him what I could say and what I couldn't say. And uh, he's in agreement. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because his doctor's interested in the fact that he's been turning. You see, doctors in the prison system rarely find people who are guilty of crimes who admit their guilt and say they're guilty. And so there are people, the judge, the, the doctors who are saying, we're not quite sure how to deal with this. We're just not sure. It's not something we're familiar with. And the only thing we can do is tell the honest truth. Do you understand that? We can't say everything's okay to this man. We can say there is a way to stand before God when you're guilty. It's to tell the whole truth. To be completely repentant. To to have no pretense. To tell no lies to the Lord. And to admit your guilt and then to plead for mercy because of Yeshua. That's it. So how do you share good news with someone who you know is going to die for crimes they committed? In this way. See, we ask God, give us opportunity to share the good news with people who are in trouble. Do you understand that? Why do we need to share good news? Because people are in trouble. Big trouble. People have incredible needs. Their lives are broken. Bodies are broken. Relationships are broken. Minds and spirits are broken. And this is a man who says, I know that without God's mercy, I would go to hell. The harvest is plentiful, Yeshua said. You know what that means? There are people ready to turn and repent. There are more people ready to turn and repent than there are laborers willing to serve them. That's how I understand it. Hold that thought. I want to connect it to something. Very few of you are probably familiar with the Jewish philosopher Michael uh, Wischogrod. He died on the 17th of this month. He was 87 years old. He had had a long illness. And there was a time in the 70s and 80s, as uh, David Goldman wrote in the Jewish magazine Tablet, he wrote that uh, Wischogrod was almost a cult figure among young Christian theologians. And uh, the Methodist scholar, R. Kendall Sulin, uh, published the first collection of this Jewish philosopher's essays that was called uh, Abraham's Promise. And Sulin, a, a strong Christian believer, saw hope for Christians 
in what Goldman describes as Wishograd's impassioned portrayal of God's love for Israel. So Sulan said, because God loves Israel, we who are Christian can have confidence. And he explained this, God also desires to be redeemer of the world as the one whose first love is the people of Israel. Now some background, this is, this is my comment. There are some Christian theologians who think Jewish theology is very narrow and too particular. It's only focused on one people, the Jewish people. Christian theology is very broad and universal. It doesn't narrow itself like Judaism does, and it's concerned with all people. Sulan understood, now that's understood, that's not the correct way of understanding it. Jewish thought is this God shows his love first to a people and then to the whole world. And through that people, he reaches the whole world. You see the difference in the understanding? Very important. So rather than minimizing, denying, rejecting, or objecting to the chosenness of the Jewish people, uh, Sulan, like some others, have, have said, no, God who lo- wants to love all first loves a nation. He first loves a person, then a family, then a tribe, then a nation in order to show his true love for the whole world. And then the writer in this article quotes Wishograd, who wrote this, because God said, I will bless those who bless you to Abraham and curse him that curses you. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Because God said this, he has tied his saving and redemptive concern for the welfare of all humankind to his love for the people of Israel. So Wishagrod was saying, there's a connection. You see, when you love the Jewish people, you get blessed. Now, it's not that you're seeking the blessing, and that's why you love. It's because you love that you bless. Parents, grandparents understand this. You love your children, you love your grandchildren, and that's why you bless them. Am I correct? Now, for those of us who are in Messianic congregations, we can assert the same thing. God's love for Israel and his love for all the nations of the world are tied together. Do you agree with me? It's important to to distill this thought. We can say that the coming of Messiah Yeshua reflects two things. God's love for Israel on one hand and his love for the whole world and all the nations of the world on the other hand. That's important to understand. These are not two separate choices. You can have one or the other. They fit together. God's love for Israel is connected to his love for the whole world. So we can go further and we can say this. The birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Yeshua all together are the means by which God has extended his covenant love for Abraham and Abraham's descendants in order to include everyone who would trust him and revere him. How did God make this this covenant broader, bigger, He did it by renewing the covenant with the Jewish people. He did it by keeping covenant with Abraham. 
and making a way for the nations of the world to come into a covenant, not by converting to Judaism, but by turning to the God of Israel through his Messiah. And so when we tell the story about the birth of Messiah from our perspective as Messianic Jews, we can say God showed his faithfulness to Abraham and to all Israel by sending Yeshua into the world. That's very important for us to to grasp. Now, I want to turn this to a Christmas message if, if I can. And I, and I think Christmas is, is a good time for Messianic Jews. In fact, I was encouraged this year because uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, sent special greetings to Christian citizens of Israel and his Christian friends all over the world. Plus, just a few weeks ago, a whole group of Orthodox rabbis in America uh, published a new position of acceptance of Christianity as a brother, brotherly religion, if you will, to the Jewish people. And so they rejected one of the practices and beliefs of much of Orthodox Judaism that says, don't have any fellowship, any spiritual fellowship with Christians. You can do humanitarian work together, you can talk about ethics and morality, but don't talk about spiritual things. That was one of the teachings, one of the rules governing the Orthodox world. But this group of Orthodox rabbis has chosen right before Christmas to say, you know what? We're together. Isn't that interesting that they would do this? So you know, Christmas can be a good time. <laughs> Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, said something in Luke chapter 1. You can turn there. Oh, by the way, if you have Facebook on your, your iPhone or digital apparatus with you, you can go to the Beth Israel uh, page, Beth Israel Messianic Synagogue page on Facebook, or you can go to Messianic Jewish Teachings with David Levine page on Facebook. You'll see all the scriptures uh, for this weekend, I, all the scriptures I could possibly use. They're there. And so if you're wondering, how can I keep up with this guy? It's too much page turning and I, I can't turn that fast. Here's one way. You can just go right to Facebook and you can look. We'll see if that helps anybody. I put a little note that if you use it and it helped you keep up during the teachings to write a comment because it's not a lot of work, but it is some work to get all that up in time. And I want to know whether it's worth it. If you're not using it, I'm not doing it. (laughs) So the comments will tell me. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46, this is known in the Christian world as the Magnificat. Mary said, my soul, Mary, you know, what was her name? Miriam. Yeah, if we're going to say Yeshua, we should get his mom's name right too. Miriam said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him those who revere him from generation to generation. 
He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant, Israel. Remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is what Mary was saying when she found out that, that she, was, she was carrying Messiah in her body. She started praising the Lord and saying, you're faithful to your servant Israel. You're faithful to Abraham. You're faithful to Isaac, to Jacob. You're faithful to our ancestors, to the patriarchs and the matriarchs. Oh God, you're so faithful to us. That was her proclamation. She understood. She understood that the coming of Messiah was not just a personal thing that involved her. It was a personal expression of God's covenant faithfulness to the Jewish people. So we can say this, starting with his own mother Miriam, myriads and myriads, or thousands and thousands of Jewish people received the good news. And they formed distinctive communities of faith among the Jewish people of that generation. That's important for you and me to understand. To read about that in the the New Testament where it's clearly explained. We need to read it and to grasp it because there's a common story. And that is Jesus came and the Jewish people rejected him. Well, the last I looked, Miriam was Jewish. How many agree with that? Did she reject him? I'm, I'm glad that the Catholics love Mary, but she's one of us. My grandmother's name was Miriam. My little sister's middle name is Miriam. So it's like a family thing for me. I don't see a Catholic woman, nothing against the Catholics. I don't see a woman who spoke Latin or anything. She was a good Jewish girl. I'm not even sure she understood Greek. Can't say for sure. Now, in the book of Acts, it says two things really clearly. Lots of Jewish people believed, and lots of Jewish leaders believed. Let me read to you the book of Acts and John as well. Acts 21, verse 20. I'm just pulling this out of context, but you can read the context on your own. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all deeply committed to the Torah. So were Jewish people throwing away Torah? No, no, they weren't. They were renewing their life in it. In in fact, the Orthodox rabbis who are proclaiming that Christianity is now an acceptable, brotherly religion, they're saying that that Jesus of Nazareth, the Christian Messiah, as they would put it, was one of the greatest teachers of Torah in all of history. And pure in his dedication to Torah. Can you believe that? I mean, in Talmud it says something, you know, false. But Orthodox rabbis are now saying, we've looked at it, we understand this. Yeshua, the Messiah, Yeshua, the one you call Messiah, was devoted to Torah. 
Very interesting. Now, John chapter 12, verse 42, says much the same thing in, in different terms. It says this, at the same time, many, even among the Jewish leaders, believed in him. Many, say that with me. Many, many believed. Is that different from a few? When it, when it comes to wealth, would you rather have many dollars or few? Many? Okay. Okay. Many. Is many more than a few? Yes. Now, here's an example of, a, of an incorrect translation, the New Living Translation, which often is dynamic and captures things accurately, blunders entirely on this verse. And it says this, many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders. But the text doesn't say that. The text says many Jewish leaders believed in him. So was it a few? No, it was many. Thousands and thousands of Jewish people who loved Torah and many Jewish leaders. So when we tell the story, the history of the coming of Messiah, we have to tell it according to the facts of the New Testament, not according to tainted distortions that have developed over time. It was Jewish people, think about this, who wrote the Gospels. Now, some say Luke was not born a Jew. Others say he wasn't born a Jew, but he became a proselyte, a convert to Judaism. In any case, he was absolutely familiar with Jewish text, Jewish practice as well. So if we, if we park Luke as an uncertainty, and then we deal with all the other books of the writings of the New Testament, let's ask how many were written by Baptists? How many were written by Pentecostals? How many were written by Episcopalians? For those who are watching by podcast, I'm holding up zeros. <laughs> we don't watch podcasts we listen to. How many, how many of these books were written by Charismatics? Okay, let's ask another question. Parking Luke for just a second. How many were written by Jews? All. Now, do you see how preposterous it is to say the Jewish people totally rejected him? The Gentiles didn't? Who told the Gentiles? Jews. Who went out among the nations to the Jew first and also to the others, Jews. So when we tell the story, we've got to tell it right. We've got to tell it factually and correctly. We have to know our scriptures so that we do tell it right. Because some people will say, the Jewish people rejected Yeshua. I don't think so. Some Jewish people did, of course. In rabbinic Judaism defined itself by rejecting Yeshua. But that doesn't mean all the Jewish people rejected Yeshua. 
It means that those who were Jews became, who, and did accept him became part of a distinctive new community that loved Torah, loved Israel, knew God was being faithful to Israel and to the covenant he made with Israel. Do you see that? It's important that we tell the story correctly. Now, we're going to close with Luke chapter 2, verse 21 through 38. About 2,000 years ago, it describes what was happening. Luke 2, verse 21. This will take just a few minutes. I want you to think with me about verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. Jesus. He, He wasn't named Jesus. He wasn't named Jesus for a simple reason. He was given a Hebrew name. Those aren't Hebrew names. They're good names, believe me. But the name the angel had given him before he was conceived was Yeshua. Which means salvation from God. Okay, now think about this. Why the eighth day? Why why the eighth day? Commandment in Torah. Brit Milah. Brit Milah, ladies and gentlemen. This is Brit Milah on the eighth day. And why was he given his name on the eighth day? Because when you do Brit Milah, first you do Brit Milah and then you give the name. That's the way Jews do it. This is describing a Jewish family doing a Jewish thing for a Jewish baby. Do you get that? It should be really clear to us. So why is Luke paying attention to these details? Because he knows they're important. Now when the time came, verse 22, for the purification rites required by the Torah of Moses, Joseph and Miriam took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the Torah of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. As it's written in Torah. Do you see that? This is the redemption of the firstborn son called Pidyon Haben. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the Torah of the Lord. Interesting, it says the Torah of the Lord. That's very specific language. It could have said the Jewish scriptures. It could have said the Old Testament. It doesn't. It says the Torah. It uses the Greek word for Torah, nomos. The Torah of the Lord, it doesn't reduce it to being exclusively a Jewish thing. It says this is the Torah that belongs to God. It says every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the Torah of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. You see, that was for poor families uh, because it was less costly to obtain these, these birds. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Shimon who was righteous and devout. This is the text. I want you to see how how the New Testament text written by Luke, we're not sure does Luke know Jewish things? I think he does. Was he born a Jew? Who knows? But he gets this. Shimon was righteous and devout. Say that with me. Righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
Say that with me. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Isn't that an interesting observation? The Holy Spirit was upon this man. It had been revealed to him by whom? The Holy Spirit. That he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So Shimon was waiting. He knew deep inside he was going to see Messiah. Verse 27. Moved by the Spirit. Say that with me. Moved by the Spirit. How was he moved? By the Spirit of the living God. He went into the courts of the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Yeshua to do for him what Torah required, Shimon took this baby in his arms, and he praised the Lord, and he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Because my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, he was saying, my eyes have seen your Yeshua. Do you get it? Because when he used the word salvation, he's using, he's using a form of the word of the name Yeshua. My eyes have seen your Yeshua. That's how we could have said it. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Who is he? He's the glory of the people Israel. Verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Shimon blessed them and said to Miriam, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against and a sword and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Verse 36, there was also a prophet, prophetess Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. Now, this is a freebie, say tribe of Asher. So much for the idea that all the tribes were lost. Okay, if anybody has built a theology like the Ephraimites and the two sticks and the two house folk have built a theology on the idea that all the other tribes have been lost, the ten tribes of Israel, the New Testament scriptures inspired by God do not agree with you. Of what tribe was Paul? Benjamin. Oh, of what tribe was Anna? Asher. So much for the idea that nobody knew who they were except for the Levites and the Kohanim and maybe the Judeans. We could say wrong. Okay? Okay, continue. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the Jerusalem temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that exact moment, she gave thanks to God and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So do you see how these Jewish figures, Miriam, there are others as well, Elizabeth, uh, Shimon, Anna and others, they're recognizing who Yeshua is at the very beginning and they're proclaiming good news. They're saying, this is going to be tough for other people, but we know who he is. 
I want you to remember this because it's important to be strong like them and to be clear like them, to not be afraid, to be bold and to be strong. If you want to be a person who's really used by God, spread the good news to our Jewish people. Now we're going to close. I'm going to read to you Prime Minister Netanyahu's Christmas greeting, which as of a few hours ago had... Uh, over a million and a half, heading towards two million likes on Facebook already. It's a short, I printed this so small. The picture of Netanyahu is real big. The text is really small. This is what he wrote. From Jerusalem, I wish Israel's Christian community and Christians everywhere a very joyous Christmas and a happy new year. I am proud to say that Israel is one of the few countries in the Middle East, maybe the only country in the Middle East, where Christians are truly free to practice their faith openly, freely to celebrate Christmas and other Christian holidays. The state of Israel is a beacon of liberty in a Middle East plagued by oppression and extremism. Here everyone can practice their faith because in Israel religious freedom is sacred. It is my fervent hope, my fervent prayer, that 2016 is marked by greater security and freedom for all Christians across the Middle East. May the coming year bring the blessing of peace and prosperity for all humanity. So on behalf of the people of Israel, on behalf of the Israeli government, I wish all our Christian friends a very Merry Christmas. And I also invite you, come to Israel. Thank you, Bibi. He didn't say Bibi, I just added that. So isn't that interesting that uh, at, at this day, at this time, the prime minister of Israel wants to stop and say to the Christians of the world, we care about you. Merry Christmas. Isn't that interesting? So if Bibi can say Merry Christmas, you as Messianic Jews, you can not be afraid to say Merry Christmas to people, even though Christmas is now officially over, I think. When does it end? When does it officially end? I never got this right, I have to admit. As a little Jewish boy and then as a a Jewish adult, as a Messianic Jew, I always was getting confused. What day does Christmas come on? Is it the 24th, the 25th? I couldn't figure... I I sometimes have to check the calendar. Because I forgot Christmas Eve is like a Jewish holiday. You know, it starts in the evening. And then it goes, it's like, oh, it's over two days. Oh, like any good Jewish holiday. (laughs) Just having fun with you guys. I know some of you are really serious about Christmas. You seriously love it. You seriously oppose it. I say, seriously lighten up. Let's close with Aaron's blessing. Can we do that? And I want to pray for everybody who wants to be strong and who wants those beautiful feet that the prophets are talking about. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. 
the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of the Prince of Peace, Yeshua the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.